It's got a soul, this here old farm It falls asleep inside my arms We walk the fields under the stars For love is here in Goldshaw Farms Welcome to Goldshaw Farm. I'm your host, Morgan Gold. On each episode of our podcast, we bring you stories of people who are homesteading, farming, and chasing their dreams. Back when I was living in Washington, D.C. and just working an office job and only dreaming of one day trying to start a farm in Vermont, I would often listen to podcasts and read books to educate myself. You know, I would I would try to study up on the best methods for raising trees. I would try to learn about chickens and sheep and rotational grazing. And I would often listen to the Permaculture Voices podcast with Diego Footer. Diego would feature all sorts of interesting guests of the world of permaculture and agriculture. He would sort of open up my eyes personally to a whole world that I never quite had any exposure to prior to getting interested in the idea of regenerative ag. And so it was very cool to always listen to those shows. And, you know, to this day, Diego still does uh, several podcasts, including uh, Grass Fed Life, which is focused on livestock, and Farm Small, Farm Smart, which is focused on market gardening. He also uh, recently started up a company that is focused on. Uh, selling uh, paper pot transplanters. The, they are these really nifty, cool uh, transplanting devices that if you're um, trying to grow a whole bunch of seedlings and trying to you know, market garden and plant a bunch of seedlings in a matter of a couple of minutes, these paper pot things, if you look online and look for a video of it, it's just awesome. They just can go down an entire row and you can deposit seedlings really quickly. And it's, it's a useful tool for small farmers. And, and Diego is one of those guys who, who's just a really interesting person in that, you know, he in and of himself, he, he gardens himself. He's got some chickens and he does some stuff out in his home in California, but he, he's not actually a farmer himself. He is much more focused on supporting the farming movement and the small farming movement and, and restorative agriculture. And, and I think he's been a very important voice for the growth of the small farm movement because you know, it's been his podcast and the education that he's offered up that's really helped a lot of people like me ultimately get started on a path towards agriculture. And, and, and if we really think that this idea of more small farms will change the world, it takes people who are essentially evangelists like Diego to really make that change happen. Well, uh, the other day I actually was lucky enough to sit down and have a conversation with Diego and learn a little bit about him and his story and get a sense of how he got into the world of permaculture and farming. So why don't you take a listen? When it came time to look for jobs in college, a lot of firms were interviewing on the campus where I was at, at Virginia Tech, and it really gave me some options of what do you want to do with the rest of your life. The field I had had picked out, I mean, that was essentially the path that had been chosen for me at that point, or the path I had made for myself. That was mining engineering, actually. 
And so you had these mining companies come in to Virginia Tech and interview people. It was, where do you want to live? And for me, growing up on the East Coast, you know, this is the 90s and 80s when I grew up. The internet wasn't everything that it was today. And California, I think, still had a bit of mystique around it. At least it did to me. So it always had this attraction to me. And there just happened to be one company that came there from California, and I made sure I gave them the best pitch I could. They ended up hiring me, and I was brought to California via work by that company. And that was actually this month, about 16 years ago. So I've been out here almost as long as I've been on the East Coast at this point. And now you worked for a number of years, not in anything related to doing podcasts or agriculture, but you were drawn to it at a certain, to a certain extent. What was the draw and how, how did you get started there? Yeah, initially that experiment with working in mining as an engineer, that was a failed experiment in life for me. Then I'm glad I did, but it just wasn't where I was going to be. So I ended up doing that for a year did other things between then and now, had my longest job, which was about 11 years at a finance firm. And at the beginning, I loved it. And I think like a lot of people, you get really excited about a job that you're doing at the beginning. But certain things, I think as I matured, as I got more knowledgeable, they stopped resonating with me. I think at the beginning, I was excited about the draw. This was in finance of working within the markets, making money. And then as I did that, and as I got older, I started to, moving through my 20s, that is, and into my 30s and having some kids. I realized, okay, money is not everything. This isn't everything. Do I want to do this for the next 30 years? And the answer was no. I didn't really like who I worked for. I didn't like who I worked with. Not that they were bad people. They just weren't my people. They weren't into the same things that I was. So I started really looking for ways to dabble on the outside. And things really changed when the company I was working for got bought out by an international company. And that really was a bit of an awakening. It was like, wow, okay, everything can change because I was at this family-owned company that was very small, like 20 people there. Everything felt super comfortable. And when you're in that setting as a job where you show up, you get paid, you're not carrying the burden of running the business. You can feel almost like a kid might with their parents. You're You're insulated a little bit from the outside world because – all the nasty stuff of running a business is taken care of by someone higher up than you. And that felt comfortable. And then when this company bought us, and it was a big company, a publicly traded company, then it was like, wow, okay, everything could change because they could come in and clear us all out in a heartbeat. So I really needed to start creating some anti-fragility in my life. I needed to create a, a backup plan. One that would insulate me or help protect me if this new company said, bye-bye, we don't need you anymore, we don't want you. And one that would also fulfill other parts of my life, things I wanted to explore, things I wanted to do. So I started dabbling 
in entrepreneurship. I attended one event that really woke me up, and I so that was a big turning point in my life. And after that event, I kind of pushed forward with some different entrepreneurial things, eventually landing on a conference. And the conference really came to be because I had made a change around 2008 in terms of health. When a client at the firm I was at sent me a book on cancer, it was a wide awakening for me. It really hit something that I just had never realized. It put a lot of things about cancer in front of me in a way that really resonated with me at the time and cut through all the other noise out there, changed my diet, that made me want to grow food, that made me, growing food made me want to learn more about things like permaculture, that joined forces with the entrepreneurial spirit, started a permaculture conference, and at the time, I was talking to someone in my PDC, and they did a podcast, and I was like, wow, it'd be really cool to go work with them on their podcast, maybe do some guest episodes with them, maybe they'll let me host a few episodes, and I thought, well, one day I'm just going to start one, and I don't remember exactly why but it was, I'm going to do this, and I'm somebody, when I kind of get committed to doing it, I do it and I go all in, and that was seven years ago, and we're still going. Now, as you made that choice to, to focus in on, on the conference and, and building out opportunities to communicate about permaculture, I know you've also been a practitioner to a certain extent, but you haven't ever made that your, your full-time focus. Why, why is that? I mean, it was a money thing, not that... I need to have a lot of money, but it was, I need to have a way to support the life that I have chosen to live. And, and I'll qualify by that by saying it's not extravagant, but before I got into this, I had a mortgage. I had a child. We knew we wanted to have more kids. I had college loans. And at the time, I think, I didn't see a, a quick path to monetization of practicing permaculture where I lived out there. It just, it didn't exist. At least it wasn't on my radar. I don't want to say there weren't people doing it because there definitely were, but I didn't really see a way to make it work for me. I didn't have 10 acres. I didn't have a hundred acres. I didn't even have one acres. Uh, now I look at models of people like Curtis Stone and what people do with microgreens and different ways to value add things. And I think it could have been done in this location, but I'm not sure that that's who I was. So the when I went in on the event to start doing that, I mean, that became it. That was the plan to support myself through permaculture. It was to connect people, it was to educate people, it was to spread knowledge amongst people. So I became more of a, a conduit, a satellite, versus somebody who was on the receiving end of that information and then taking that and creating some sort of local business out of it. I was more at, higher up in the watershed trying to affect that part of things. I think you've had this impact with, you know, particularly your podcast, of, of reaching a lot of people. I mean, I, I've often told people the story of, you know, four years ago, three years ago, even I, I was living in Washington, D.C. I was just starting to go down that, you know, restorative agriculture, permaculture rabbit hole that people often go down to of, of 
recognizing that, yeah, you need to grow better food to be healthy, but then also on top of that, you need to think about the systems that create the food and, you know, all the research that you can do. I discovered your podcast and that was one of the things that ultimately made me say, wow, this is something I can personally do. Um, Have you found that a lot of people have kind of started to make that leap because of, of experiences that they've had with your podcasts? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm blanking on his name or their name, but the family of, of So the Land in North Carolina. Oh, yeah, Jason Contreras. Yep. Yeah. Jason, yeah. yeah. He used to live out here in California. And I, I'm pretty sure I might be confusing stories, but he attended one of the workshops that I did with Curtis out here. And long story short, he's now in North Carolina doing his thing and really getting after it. And that's been a really cool thing that I've seen repeat many times that I never expected going into it. And I I try and convey this to people and I don't know that it always resonates or hits, but it's sometimes you do something and there is that butterfly effect that you never can account for. So initially I got into this to start a conference. If we go back to that story to support myself, to make a living, I did want to make a change. But what would that change look like? How do you trace that change through the future? Now we are a little bit more in the future because the conference was six years ago since I started planning it, seven years ago. And I can look back and say, okay, here's where I know this person started and here's where I played a part in nudging them, awakening them, and maybe sharing stories to help give them confidence. And that's been really cool to see. Because if I look at that event as a financial analyst might, you would say, oh, that that wasn't profitable. But when I zoom out and say, look at the change that it helped inspire. Maybe not necessarily changing the food system, but just simply changing the course of people's lives so they went from living a life that they might have been sleepwalking through or not totally comfortable with and found something that's just a better fit for them. And that that's something that, yes, like Jason, like Greg Burns, like Rob Kaiser, you know, introducing a lot of people to the work that Curtis does has been huge for me to see that happen. That my actions have helped kickstart a change. I think everybody always has that gasoline in them ready to burn but something's got to be the spark sometimes to light it off. And I'm happy to be in the spark for some people. Yeah, well, definitely, definitely for me. Um, you know, you talk to a lot of farmers, a lot of people who are farming full time. Now, what are some of the traits and characteristics that you see for those folks that are similar? I think farming is a very hard business compared to many other businesses that you could get in. Because you can't simply buy inventory to resell it. You have to raise it. And you're raising it against many factors like weather, genetics, the conditions you have on your particular property to raise something. So people that get into farming and survive in farming are extremely resilient, adaptable, and yet love what they do enough to push through. I I think they tend to be people who want to see a bigger change. I don't think anybody gets into farming to get rich or to just 
get 100% personal gain out of it. I definitely think there is a more social calling to that. And I think a lot of people who get into farming, I mean, this is maybe not the answer that might be expected, are overly idealistic. I think there are definitely negatives to people who get into it. They they don't pay enough attention to the business side. They don't pay attention enough to the the things that don't attract them to a business. So they might love the lifestyle of farming, but they might not put enough effort into marketing or saying, is this even the right thing to do in my area? But successful farmers are great business people first and foremost. They know how to manage complex systems, whether that be moving parts on the land or employees. And they eventually, if they really want to become great, I mean, they become great entrepreneurs. And like any industry, you can go down the list of farmers and veg or livestock and say, who are really doing well? And the people that do really well, at least if we're judging off a, a financial metric or sales metric, which I think is it's kind of how you compare apples to apples, then they are just great, great entrepreneurs. Greatiness helps, stick with itness helps, belief in a bigger cause helps. But the people that do really well know how to run businesses really well and they're not afraid to take risks and they're not afraid to spend money. I mean, that's another thing I think some people, this is an entrepreneurial thing, but you have to be afraid to spend money and risk losing it to eventually make great gains. I think that, that that's good advice because as as somebody who's just gone through just about my first full year of farming and and having a lot of hard knocks and having things not quite go to plan versus other businesses that I've worked in over the years, it, it's been one of those things that, that that grittiness seems to be the thing that if you don't have that, you can't make the other pieces work even if you have you know the passion and all the passion in the world exactly and grittiness can be a blessing and it can be a curse because it can make you stick with something that you shouldn't stick with and i potentially was in that territory with the conference that i did i think i could have changed some stuff earlier and maybe sought some outside advice earlier and i didn't i became too maybe entranced in the bigger vision. Uh, but I did know when to pull the plug. And that was after three years to say, hey, this isn't going the way it should. I need to move on. And and so grittiness gets you so far, but it can become a trap where you pour time, which is super precious. Like you can't get it back. If you're trying to start a business, you don't want to put five or 10 years into a failing business because we know we're all getting older. You only have so much energy, social capital, family time to dedicate to a new business. If you pour money into something that's not working, pour time into something that's not working for five years or 10 years, are you really going to want to start something five years from now again? A lot of people won't. So grittiness is, is great to get you through the hard times. I mean, I, I've had to have it now with what I do being successful, but it, it can force you to make adjustments that you need to do, which might mean, and Justin Rhodes would say this, and I think it's a Stephen King thing, killing your darlings, getting rid of things that you deem and hold near and dear, 
but might not be things that are going to get you to the next step or the next phase. So you're using that grittiness to push, but you don't want that grittiness to fog your vision as you're moving forward. You know, one of the things you just said there that that strikes me is kind of knowing when to ask for help and knowing when to get advice. Because I think there's often this myth, particularly for farmers, but I think for business people in general, right, where they're often saying, you know, kind of the individuals out there and they're the the lone farmer who's working their field and, and making things come together. But in your experience, that's that's absolutely a myth, right? I think it's too hard to do it by yourself. Yeah, it's I mean, I've done my current business, which is farm related selling stuff to farmers by myself in a way, you know, the portion of the business I do, I do by myself. I do have a partner who does other things, but what I do, I do by myself. And this year was very busy and it felt like a war for the first three years. If you have to do it alone, I'm not sure many people can survive in the long run alone running a business. It's, it gets isolating. You're bearing all the stress. You have to make every decision. You have to do all the work. It's not that we aren't capable, but at some point it's not going to become fun and you're going to start to hate things and you're going to start to make bad decisions. So yeah, one tough thing I think that comes with with farming is there is a lot of times this anarchist feeling of getting into something and maybe a break from the traditional financial system of like, I'm just going to do this myself. We're on our own. We're kind of off grid except for when we need to to sell stuff. But I think if somebody's getting into a business and never planning on hiring somebody from the start, I would really question that decision. I think you're you need to be starting a business thinking, okay, how do I get to the point where I can bring somebody else on? I think that needs to be baked into the plan from day one. What can I do to leverage my time my effort, the initial money I put in to get somebody in here as fast as possible. In the awakening that I really had, and I'm trying to think of who told me this, this year, I think it was Paul Greed from Primal Pastures, who, who has a super successful business, two of them. And he was saying, if you're doing everything, you can only focus on everything so much. Like I can't put 100% of my focus on, let's say, just shipping boxes every time I show up for work because I also have to worry about managing suppliers, answering the phone when customers call, doing the podcast, doing the website updates, all that type of stuff. Where if you hire somebody to pack boxes, their job is to come in and make sure that the boxes get packed correctly and accurately. They don't care about the podcast. They don't care about the website. They don't care about suppliers. Who's going to be more accurate in what they do? Who's going to do a better job? Who's going to be more focused? And you could argue, well, as the business owner, you are because it's yours. And I'd say, yes, that's true to some extent. But I also know from experience that as much as you want to be focused sometimes, if you have a lot going on and you need to turn and burn, sometimes focus gets thrown out the window or at least diminished. So when you hire somebody, I think you'll do a better job at the things you should be doing. They do a great job at what they do. So yeah, I I would approach a business 
farm business looking to bring somebody in, especially given the physical demands that go with farming day to day? In terms of farming versus homesteading, what do you see as the difference between the two? Money and goals. I think homesteading, I look at that as a lifestyle. You are doing that because you want to, there's something within who you are that you're trying to exercise. Maybe you're trying to create an example for neighbors to learn by. Maybe you're trying to restore a piece of land. Maybe you're trying to have a better lifestyle for you. Maybe you're trying to teach your kids or give your kids a specific lifestyle. Maybe you are trying to insulate yourself a little bit from the system if things ever go wrong. I think if you're homesteading, the goal is this is a hobby, this is fun, and I can try a bunch of stuff and not really care what works because the fun is in the experience. The fun is in trying. Where if you're farming, yes, it should be fun. Yes, it should be an experience, but it should be almost what is the difference between homesteading and a farm business? Because I think if you're going to say farming, business needs to be attached to it. And I, I think when people just say I farm, I think that's a little bit of a disservice. I think it should be I run a farm business because their decisions need to be based off of Yes, your goals or your holistic context, but they also have to be based upon the profitability of the business because what good does it do to farm for a year and then go out of business if your goal was to change the food system? You know, one year of impact isn't going to do squat. So if you really want to change the food system, if you want to give a better life to your kids and a farm business is the goal, then you better respect the business part because to 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 realize those goals, you need to be doing that for 20 years, 30 years. If you fizzle out, if the business goes out of business, it's over. Those goals that you got into it for are gone. Where again, homesteading, you're, you're funding this from the outside. You are taking money that you earn somewhere else and putting it into the homestead. So the homestead doesn't have to carry its own weight. Now, you may say, oh, well, I'll sell some stuff off the homestead. That's fine. But the goal of a homestead, if you look at what a lot of people are doing, like a Justin Rhodes, is not to create a business around that. And I think if people look at homesteaders and say, I'm going to do that and be financially independent, I think they're in for a rude awakening because I think homesteading can be this bottomless pit that you just throw money into. And it's never going to kick money back out where farming is the other side. It's a money multiplier like any business could potentially be where you put some money in, you use intelligence, creativity, hard work to value add that initial investment and more money comes back. So th that would be the big difference I see. And that is a danger if we go back to like what do farmers typically have in common Again, it's they see this as a business, not homestead. If you think about that blurry line, though, where you know you're going from having you know a couple backyard layers and selling some eggs to neighbors to then say, okay, I'm going to expand out my flock and try to sell even more. You know, what are the the risks that people have as they think about that expansion and almost try to think about making that leap from homesteading to farming? I don't think there's a ton of risk because we're not talking a ton of money at that point. If you think about somebody who's homesteading, 
let's say it's more on the East Coast in your neighborhood than my neighborhood. Because if you're homesteading on the East Coast, you probably have a few acres. So you have the land part figured out. You have some experience with animals. So if you go from a layer flock of 15 to a layer flock of 150, there's some cost there, but we're not talking, you're not writing a $10,000 check. So what is your risk at the worst end if somebody does that? Okay, you can't sell the eggs. So now you have these layers that you spend on. Well, you could butcher them and use them as stewing hens or just eat them. There's not a tremendous amount of risk there. So this intermediate step between going from homestead to farming is what we would call on grass-fed life that I do with Darby is farmsteading, where you your goal is to run a profitable sub-business on your homestead. You're going to say, I'm going to take one enterprise on this homestead and I'm going to treat that as a business. It might not make me rich, but it is no longer going to become a money pit hobby. And I say money pit hobby in an enduring way. I don't want to put that down or act like that's wrong. It's not. If you, Again, if it's your goal just to have fun, that's fine. But when you decide, I'm going to take this enterprise, market gardening, an orchard, pastured poultry, layers, Bees, those are probably some of the most common small-scale things that people could do. You're going to treat that thing as a business, meaning you're going to track every cost that you put into it. You're going to track your time into it. It's going to have its own bank account. And you are going to go out there and try and create a brand around that. You're going to market it. You're going to try and sell it. So at that point, you are just taking something that you enjoy on the homestead and you're formalizing it. You're controlling costs. You're paying attention to costs. You're controlling time. You're paying attention to time. And you may have to refine it and systematize a lot of it. You can't just be, well, I'll feed the chickens here one day. Tomorrow I feed them this day. You know, my kid reaches in the feed bucket and dumps out this much one day. And tomorrow it's twice as much. It's no, fill this cup to the top every day. That's as far as it goes. So that is a great transition point, farmsteading. And I think somebody like Greg Burns, who's on Instagram at The Contrary Farmstead, is an example of somebody who's embraced farmsteading. Their goal is to have a great lifestyle for their family. They live on a really cool property in Ohio, but they sell pork. They sell some other products off of their farm. And the goal of like those enterprises is to pay for themselves and kind of pay for some of the meat that they consume within their own family. So I think if you look at farm setting, it could be a great example of a way to recoup some of your costs off the homestead or get your food for free. I mean, the example that always comes up is, you know, we'll raise a hundred chickens, we'll keep 50 for us, we'll sell the other 50, and hopefully the other 50 that we sold can pay for the 50 that we're consuming, or at least really lower the cost down on them. That's that. I think that that makes a lot of sense for, for you, as you've made the leap from, you know, doing the podcast and doing some other things like the conference as a side gig to making that your full-time focus. How did you know that you were ready to make that leap? 
I don't think you're ever going to be ready for anything in life. You're never ready to get married. You're never ready to have kids. You're never ready to start a business. At some point, the desire to do it just needs to overcome the doubt to do it in your head. I think that's as simple as it gets. You just have to become motivated enough to want to change to enact change. If you try and wait for this, okay, perfect scenario of being ready, or if you you know, want to pick some checklist that I could derive to say, okay, you should have this much money in the bank, you should have these things, you're, you're probably not going to get there. Now, there's definitely some things I would definitely have taken care of. One, I would eliminate as much debt as possible. Now, student loan debt isn't terribly critical. So if we're going to look at the different layers of debt, because usually student loan debt's pretty low interest, 2 3%, that's not much in the grand scheme of things, versus credit card debt can, that can be very high. And we've done a lot of livestock workshops with Grass-Fed Life where we've had people who have used plans like Dave Ramsey talks about to eliminate a lot of credit card debt, $20,000 in credit card debt, $40,000 in credit card debt. So I think if you're going to do something, you use your job first to get rid of expensive debt. That would be a prerequisite because trying to start a business and having to pay down debt, that's a recipe for disaster. If you are working a job and in grad school, I wouldn't start a business. I would wait till you're done with the school. If your partner is pregnant, I would wait till that child is born to start a business. I wouldn't start in the middle of that. If you don't have a permanent location, like if you know you're going to be moving in the next year, and I mean moving from California to North Carolina, I, I wouldn't start a business. You could do things to get things rolling, research, get a website, light lifting stuff, but I wouldn't be formalizing anything. So beyond those things of really, and what those are is you're trying to give yourself a clearer path to the future, a little bit easier road, because the road's going to already be super potholed. We want to just knock the walking dead off the road. So now we're just worrying about the potholes that are out there and we're not going to get bitten along the way. But in terms of the readiness, once you clear off that, the obvious stuff, you just have to make a go, no-go decision. And again, like everything in life, you're never going to be ready, but you're always already. We just don't think we are. Now, as you've been somebody who has had a front row seat for the last you know, seven years or so towards the, the movement that's been taking place within, you know, restorative agriculture, permaculture, the small farm movement, homesteading. Where do you see things going over the next seven years or so? It's grown a lot since I've been in it. It's grown in a really good way. You continue to see more and more people come into this. And I think you're going to see more businesses come out of this, more local businesses that survive real-world trials. I think there's so much knowledge out there from podcasts like you do to YouTube to books. There's almost too much knowledge. But people have all the tools they need to potentially succeed now. Now it's let's take this 
toolbox that we have to work with and use it to make something happen. And I just see more people coming into this all the time. And I think you're going to see more and more people start to become successful. I mean, that's just kind of a law of averages anyway. But the, like I said, the knowledge and equipment is out there. And you're getting the support systems as people hear stories through podcasts like this to to keep the motivation going. That I think you continue to see local, smaller scale businesses grow. And I, I don't want to limit that just to like the permaculturally realm because you've already started to see this with breweries are a great example. I mean, the, the microbrew brew explosion has hit the country and I think you're starting to see a lot of businesses develop within that genre, micro food product, sauerkrauts, kombuchas, through the other side, micro farms. So I don't see that trend slowing down. I think if the economy, which has been doing great over the past, well, really since 2008, if that falters at all, you know, I think you potentially see more startup businesses. But then again, that might diminish some of these small businesses too because the free spending isn't there. Uh, but I don't see the slowing down. I mean, that's the best answer I could give. I don't know if there's any more than that. One thing to ask, I guess, for you is as you look at for yourself over the next couple of years, where do you want to go with things? I'm trying to run fast ahead while slowing down. I... I want to continue to grow everything I do, but I need to grow that through other people. I'm somebody who is the example of what I've talked about already here, of trying to do this alone for too long and getting tired, getting stressed out, not being able to do all the things I need to at 100% because sometimes getting it all done is better than getting it all done. Not perfect, but great. So I want to keep expanding, but that expansion has to come through other people. So I'm putting a lot of systems in place to bring people on, to hire people, to make sure that things like the podcast continue in, in you've been doing a podcast this year and I've done it for seven years. After a while, that honeymoon phase wears out and it gets old and then it becomes, why should I continue doing this? It doesn't pay me. It is a lot of work. And if you run a business, it's a lot of work when you already have a lot of work to do. Why do you dedicate the time to something like that? Your, your love for change only gets you so far. So by bringing in people, it ensures that, that things continue. I don't feel like walking away from the sector, but I need to find a way to do, do less so more can get accomplished coming out of the funnel that I've created. I don't want to miss my kids getting older. I have kids that are three, six and eight right now. And I don't want to keep my nose to the grindstone 365 for the next eight years and suddenly my eight-year-old 16 and I've missed that. I, I'm trying more and more on a day-to-day -day basis just to be a more present parent 
and present physically, present mentally. And that means that if I want to expand stuff and grow stuff, how do you make that happen? And that's, again, through leveraging the help of others and creating something that can pay for that help. So that's where I want to go. I want to go to something that does more while I do less. And it sounds like the perpetual motion machine, but that's really what a business is. You are leveraging your energy, intellect, capital to get something that can pay for other people to come in who have great skill sets that are beyond yours to grow it even more. Because life is too quick. It all goes by too fast. I can't believe I've been doing this for seven years. I can't believe I've been gone from my full-time job for three years. I can't believe that I'm almost at the point where being age 20 was 20 years ago. Like That seems crazy to me. When we can go at any time, I'm really trying to take advantage of the moments and not miss it, not do too much, and not try to make every change myself because there are great people out there like Jason at So The Land, like you, like Curtis, like Stephen Cornett at Nature's Always Right that are maybe inspired by what I did and they're picking up and you're picking up and getting that information out there. And I'm glad to see that. I'm glad to see that happening because I can kind of rest a little bit. And that's really where I want to go is growth through resting. You know, Diego brings such an interesting perspective to things, particularly the business side of farming. And as I'm working right now to try to make my farm successful and really get my farm off the ground, that sort of ruthless mindset of prioritization and, and being very focused and thinking about the bottom line and thinking about things like a business person, you know, that's that's something that I think Diego always brings to the table and and. I feel like I could learn a lot from by focusing more in on. And uh, I hope you guys got some of that out of this conversation as well, you know, especially for those of you who are either actively farming or considering farming. Um, I think it's, it's, it's just some really good information in there that Diego dropped and, and it's some good advice. If you want to hear more from Diego, be sure to check out his podcast, Farm Small, Farm Smart. Uh, it's a ton of great information, lots of great guests that he has on. And, you know, it's something that is regularly in my listening rotation. So I, I strongly encourage you to do the same. And beyond that, I just wanted to give some quick shout outs and kudos to all of you guys who are writing those reviews. It's helping more and more people discover us. Uh, we are now up to over a thousand downloads per week on average, which is a great metric for us in our podcast. And so I just really appreciate the support. It's so exciting to see this grow. If you want to ever reach out to me, be sure to shoot me an email at goldshawfarm at gmail.com. And I will be back really soon with another episode of the Goldshaw Farm podcast. 
Uh, I will ask my good, good friend, Mr. Keith Pierce, to please play our theme song. It's got a soul, this hero farm. It falls asleep inside my arms. We work the fields under the stars. The love is here at Goldshaw Farms. A city life, yeah, had its charms. Stars, I fall asleep inside its arms. The love is here at Goldshop Farms. The love is here at Goldshop Farms.